Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Story of the Automobile. Published in 1917, we will listen to the origins of the automobile and how it became what it is today. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. This podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thanks to everybody who reached out during the week. Thank you to iTunes listeners Haley C. from the US, Jens C.W. from Denmark, Castelluzzo99 from the US. Special thank you also to Rebecca for your kind messages through the website. And also to Claire Playle for your lovely comment on Instagram. Your reviews and messages mean a great deal to me. For all the other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence really helps out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyetosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, at Boy to Sleep. You can also find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Story of the Automobile. Its history and development from 1760 to 1917. So far as I know, there is no book in circulation that tells in concise form the story of the mechanical and commercial evolution of the automobile mirrors its sudden leap into popular use and shows how it is demonstrated in a most amazing way. The power of money to make money describes its benefits to the world and forecasts the future possibilities of the automobile industry as an investment. This book, The Story of the Automobile, shows the struggle of man for 150 years to devise a means of propelling a vehicle without animal power. It describes the various stages of the evolution of the idea of motive force other than animal power, in France, England, Germany, and the United States, and its triumphant culmination in a successful horseless vehicle. And it makes clear how, when the automobile became of practical use, its successful commercialization became most profitable in the shortest period of time, of that of any product of man's ingenuity, supplying an article to meet human wants, 
But if this were all that could be recorded of the story of the automobile, this book would not have been written. The automobile's success demonstrates all this, and something more, something that would not ordinarily occur to a person unless his attention was called to it. The astonishing history of the automobile's success affords one of the most convincing and the best modern instance of opportunities that are being constantly presented for investing for profit. It is a signal example kept in our hearing every day by the Niagara-like roar of cars along our boulevards of the fact that this age of golden opportunities for making money make money of opportunities that disclose themselves, sometimes unexpectedly, and when embraced, are apt to respond with a veritable avalanche of profits. For was it not an avalanche of profits that overwhelmed the men who in 13 years made $200 million and was offered another $200 million for only a small part of his business. And this great fortune made by Henry Ford did not exhaust the Ford automobile's possibilities, for millions are still being taken out of the business. One investor of $2,000, having received over half a million dollars out of it lately. When men who are not 40 years old today come out of high school, they either did not know what an automobile was, or if they had seen one of the very earliest examples, they had no vision of what it would develop into, no conception of what the future had in store for the wobbly horseless vehicle zigzagging down the street as a potential money-maker. And in the early days of the automobile struggles for recognition as a promising investment, no banker or other moneyed man could be brought to believe that it held out any reasonable hopes of great gain. No one could foresee, not even the inventors of the automobile, that in less than two decades the business done through its comparative perfection would rank forth in order of the industries of the United States. And still less was there anybody so foresighted in the possibilities that lie in money to make more money, as to vision the billions of dollars of profits to be paid out by this one idea of a horseless vehicle. We can find few instances which so forcefully show as the automobile industry shows, the chances for profitable investment in a short time, which may come from sources supplying the needs or pleasures of the great mass of the people. The chapters of the story of the automobile devoted to its commercialization make clear that its greatest success has been due to the production of automobiles at a price within reach of people 
of ordinary means. For this, the one man most responsible is Henry Ford. He has demonstrated in a manner of many millions that the most money is to be made out of things used by the greatest number of people, things that become common needs. The enduring truth of the profitableness of Philip de Armour's apothem, make and sell things that are et up, is not discredited by the automobile industry, for the use of the automobile eats up steel, wood, brass, rubber, leather, gasoline, and many other natural resources. The automobile wears out and has to be replaced, so it properly comes in the category of things at up. This truth that the greatest profits lie in products that can be given general distribution with a consequent large scale which is one I have maintained in my book, Making Money, Make Money, in my magazine, Investing for Profit, and in all my teachings on the science of investing, finds a splendid exemplification in the automobile industry's success as a phenomenally profitable form of investment. And the circumstances of this success are but culminative evidence of the soundness of my doctrine. And the success of the automobile industry, in the measure and with the speed it is achieved, verifies not only this claim I have made and maintained, but confirms my contention of the value of cooperation. I have preached cooperation as urgently as I have advocated as the best objects of investment, the value of things used popularly and in quantities. The story of the automobile could not have been written into it the glamour of the golden guerdons of Golconda, but for Ford's idea of quantity production, reinforced by cooperative standardization of parts. Cooperation between the manufacturers produced standardization, and standardization enabled quantity production, and the low price which quantity consumption warranted has caused automobiles to be bought by millions, and the purchase of the automobile in millions, instead of thousands has made the hundreds of millions of dividends which the wonderful mine of profits has yielded. The story of the automobile is one of the best and most notable proofs of two of my convictions, bedded in the concrete of experience, namely that the most promising investments are those made in natural resources and enterprises, which the largest number of people can patronize, and that cooperation is one of the most effective forces in nature, and therefore applicable to the affairs of men as a beneficent influence and, if efficient, the handmaiden of success. The story of the automobile has herein been treated in a way
that not only presents a graphic relation of the automobile's development as an invention, its commercialization, its benefits to man and the position it occupies as a notable example of earning power, but in a manner that develops the many morals taught by its success. The chapter contributed by Mr. Edward G. Westlake, Automobile Editor of the Chicago Evening Post, is a resume of automobile conditions from the intimate viewpoint of a writer who has specialised in the automobile and enjoys a deserved reputation as the Dean of the Automobile Editors of the Daily Newspaper Press. Everyone interested in automobiles will derive information and entertainment through reading Mr. Westlake's presentation of the amazing features of automobile industrial figures. In it, he states, interesting facts, not stated elsewhere in the volume. The book's interest and value as a contribution to automobile literature of which there is not much in book form, would be less than they are but for the participation in its preparation by the Business Boss International Inc., New York, whose Vice President, Mr. J. George Frederick, is one of the highest authorities on business economics. The chapter by the Business Boss deals with the automobile industry, from the standpoint of the financial and investment aspects of the automobile, accessory and tyre manufacturer's securities, and Mr. Frederick's reputation in the financial world is a guarantee of the authoritative accuracy of the facts presented in this chapter. Credit for salient facts in the history of the automobile obtained and used in the story of the automobile, is given to a large volume of nearly 500 pages, The Romance of the Automobile Industry by James Rude Doolittle, issued lately by the Klebold Press in New York City. This volume is the most exhaustive work in book form yet published on the automobile, and covers graphically every phase of its development and popularization. It is virtually a textbook and a reference guide of facts of motor car history. I can only hope that the work entailed in presenting this, the story of the automobile, has been done sufficiently well to make it interesting and instructive to those who read it. What did Benjamin Franklin have to do with the automobile? A great many readers of this book will ask. Benjamin Franklin was many-sided, and he had a great deal to do with much that affects the birth of the American nation. And if it had not been for what he and other patriots, statesmen, and diplomats did... The automobile business might have been in this country today exactly what it is in England today, and that is a very insignificant industry. 
Among other things, Franklin was a singer of the Declaration of Independence, and it was the American Revolution that made the automobile industry of today possible. For had there been no revolution, we would probably still be a dominion of Britain beyond the seas, and it is very certain that England would have had in force in the colonies the laws she kept on her statute books until 1896, practically prohibiting, by the imposition of excessive road tolls, the use of the public highways to horseless carriages. For, strange as it may seem to us in this country, which Emerson epitomised as another name for opportunity, the English horse owners and people generally resented, as early as 1840, the progress represented by the automobile, and stifled all development of it from that time to a date when France, Germany, and the United States had made it a real factor in transportation. If, therefore, Franklin had not helped to free this land from the British yoke, the automobile industry might have been in the United States what it is in England today. France and Germany might now have been doing the automobile business of the world, with England and this country buying from them, as England and France are now buying from the United States whose automobile supremacy at this date is unquestioned. While the gasoline type of automobile today is the most popular, this is not to say that the electric type is not a success scientifically and commercially. Indeed, the future extent of the automobile's use for commercial purposes is said by experts to depend largely on the electric-driven vehicle. And who will deny that, but for Franklin, the electric motor would not have been, for it was he who wrestled the thunderbolt from heaven, as well as the scepter of dominion over our land from the tyrant. Franklin, as the discoverer of electricity, may well be accorded the credit for the electric automobile which has played no small part in the development of the automobile industry, a fact which every student of automobile history will concede. It is, however, on an even firmer foundation than either of the causes mentioned, that Benjamin Franklin stands as contributing to the success of the automobile industry. The inventors could invent and the manufacturers could make the automobile, but who, pray, was to buy it, if it was to be in general use, if not the common people? And how, may we ask, were the people going to buy it without money? As the great teacher of frugality and thrift, Franklin laid the cornerstone 150 years ago, on which the superstructure of the American automobile industry has been erected. 
for assuredly had the seed been planted by him failed to germinate and ripen in the American consciousness, we could as well have been today a nation of spendthrifts as a people self-denying, thrifty and frugal. He inculcated those principles of temperance and economy in the lives of our forefathers, which have been handed down to us from one generation to another, to our advantage and as an aid to our saving habits, by which we are enabled to buy automobiles. Many a motor car today owes its ownership to the teachings of Franklin. Many an automobile buyer would never have become one had he not heeded Franklin's injunction to remember a patch on your coat and money in your pocket is better and more credible than a writ on your back and no money to take it off. And the investor would not have put money in stocks of automobile companies if he had not learned the truth of Franklin's teaching that money makes money and the money that money makes makes more money. Franklin, having done what he could do to prepare American citizens to economize and save against the day of the automobile and to invest their money in its manufacture, and the American citizen, having followed his teachings and accumulated enough to buy at least a Ford and perhaps a few shares of automobile company stocks, the man appeared who produced the first gasoline automobile in the United States. That man was Charles E. Duria. His reputation rests on the fact that, though there were steam and electric automobiles in existence, and the gasoline motor had been developed, he was the first to put gasoline motor and buggy body into coordination and make the first run the second. To Duria, the constructor of the buggy ought, is accorded the credit by automobile history of being the father of the American gasoline car. Following Duria, by only one year, came the genius who put into general circulation the universal car. A reading of Henry Ford's biography discloses that his first idea, that the big money was in production in quantity, that a million articles sold at a profit of 50 cents each, was a better paying transaction than 10,000 sold at $3 each, was in connection with a watch. Watches and clocks were the first things that Ford subjected to the mechanical promptings of his boyish mind, and he had it all planned out to make a 50-cent watch before Ingersoll had conceived the commercial possibilities of a dollar one. An accident which his father met, which called him from Detroit to the Michigan farm, and this accident deprived the country of a 50-cent watch and gave it a 350 automobile instead. 
and most people will agree that it was a fair exchange and no robbery. Thomas A. Edison, strange as it may sound, was responsible for the practically universal use of the Ford automobile, for he it was who, by the chance remark, what you want to do to make money is to make quantity started Ford on his downward price career. We have it from Mr. Ford himself that he heard this statement by Edison and that it so impressed him that it made the rule and guide of his life that he never renounced the idea. When after building a motor that was a success and commanded the attention and capital of moneyed men in Detroit, Ford formed his first company to build his car. This great idea was obstinately adhered to by him, and was the cause of his falling out with his moneyed partners. They could not see the light which has given Ford his halo, the great white light of quantity production. This light burns with steady brilliancy because it is generated by the great principle of the greatest good to the largest number. Ford's associates in his first company were not believers in this principle, evidently because when they fell out with Ford about it and Ford got out of the company to start the one he now controls, they went ahead making cars that sell today from 2,300 to 3,900. But though they have made fair profits, they have not made the fabulous sums that Ford has, and one can only wonder how they feel about it, and if they realize the error of their views. They are probably wiser, if not richer. The success of Ford's quantity sales demonstrates a great facts in the affairs of life. It is that fields of human endeavour are not exhausted or worked out until the human race has ceased to exist. Take any line of enterprise you will, and it has as many facets as a prism. An idea only is needed, which, if the right one, illustrates the enterprise as it lights thrown on the prism cause it to sparkle in many coloured ways. We think, for instance, that the acme has been reached in the making and marketing of bread, but along comes a man with an idea for making bread of bran, and he is immediately ushered into the inner sanctum of the temple of great prophets. Or we imagine that the last word has been said in cereal foodstuffs, when lo and behold, the man with the right idea proves that the field has room and to spare for a financial success. In so simple a thing as rice dressed in a palatable and saleable form. And so it is in everything, automobiles especially. The man who conceives the idea of a sport car supplies a want that others have neglected. There may be many automobile tractors on the market, 
but the human brain conceives one with some feature lacking in others, such, for instance, as making a Ford automobile interchangeable into a farm tractor, and it has an immediate and large success. And if anybody had an idea that the profits from producing petroleum might be limited by the use of gas and electric light, it was because the automobile's enormous consumption of gasoline and the use of oil by ships could not be foreseen. The field for investment is kept constantly fallow and ready for the seed that is so to fructify into great profits by the human brain which is ever active, ever thinking. If its product is not an elemental, it is a supplementary idea, as the rubber tyre, the demountable rim and the self-starter for automobiles. Until the world has arrived at perfection in all things, the ultimate will not have been reached. The opportunities of today and tomorrow are as great as they were yesterday. It is a question whether they are not greater, for if the quotation ascribed to Emerson is true, that the world will beat a path to the door. The future possibilities of enterprise are favoured by increased population and the element of the cumulative nature of the wants of man. As inventions and articles of use increase in number, new needs which demand supplementary products are created. Each new thing given to the world brings in its train other things. The crank of a Ford auto creates a demand for a self-starter. The increase in population and wealth brings in its train of multiplication of human units whose use of created things is on a crescendo scale. In the ground floor days of the Ford making money machine, Miss Cousins risked $100 on Ford. That $100 produced $100,000 in cold cash. But it did so only because the inception of the Ford Enterprise provided the opportunity. Having made its half a billion or more, the Ford Enterprise is no longer enterable on any basis that would give such returns for each dollar invested. When money is needed, enterprise is willing to pay liberally for its use. When enterprise has all the money at once, money's value to it is less. This is the most natural law. It is a law that operates in other things besides money. He that hath needs not. He that hath not wants. The automobile industry illustrates graphically that when an enterprise develops to the point where it is well grounded and has reached a period of age and steady earning capacity, it is not new investors who may come in and gather the richest plums, but the old ones those who helped to give it its start, who stood by it when the future was obscure, 
and the ultimate outcome not certain, there is probably no business that shows as many people in it now who were in it at the start as the automobile business. This applies to manufacturers and distributors and investors and is to a certain extent due to the industry's newness. The original Ford investors are practically all intact. It is the original investors who have reaped the reward of their courage in embarking in new enterprise and who have shared in the division of the juicy melons the automobile companies have cut in the form of huge stock and other dividends. We need no better proof of the fact that ground floor investments promise the greatest return on money invested than the financial history of the automobile. While quantity production and the cooperative spirit which led to the standardization were the key tones in the structure of the present-day automobile success. The history of the successful developments of the automobile demonstrates another fact, which is a vital one in the realm of investment. The fact is that most great financial successes are built on our natural resources, This is peculiarly so of the automobile industry. The steel, wood, rubber, leather and glass of which the automobile is composed are all products of the ground, the forest or the farm. It could not be said that all products of earth directly make the profits of a stock life insurance company but this can be said of the automobile industry, and its history discloses that the automobile business of the United States was four times rescued from failure, first by petroleum, for steam and electric cars would not sell in quantities, and the gasoline from petroleum was needed to give the automobile its great vogue, once by tungsten, vanadium and chromonium, again by the quantity production theory, and finally by cooperative standardization. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story of the automobile. I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Until then, good night.